This is Macro Horizons, episode 33, Hanging Up the White Pants, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts on the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 26th. And as the summer quickly comes to an end, it's an ideal time to consider permanently retiring this seersucker suit. John. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, events since the last FOMC have been, well, eventful. Well said. And that was the big takeaway for the Treasury market from this week, where we had a series of relatively meaningful Fed events. We had the FOMC minutes combined with Powell's Jackson Hole speech. What I found the most interesting was it really didn't change overall market expectations for what we're going to see as it stands right now. The futures market has fully priced in two additional 25 basis point cuts by the end of the year. That's to a large extent where we have stood throughout the course of the last several weeks. However, it is notable that the probability for a third rate cut has been reduced relatively sharply over the course of the week. Now, part of that is going to be a function of the fact that some of the more hawkish members on the committee had their proverbial 15 minutes of fame around the Jackson Hole event, and that reminded the market that there are two or three or arguably 12 sides to the argument of exactly where we are in terms of monetary policy. Our net takeaway has been no major change in our outlook. We continue to see a 25 basis point rate cut in September as the path of least resistance. In September, we'll also get updated economic projections and the Fed will have the opportunity to signal even more via the beloved dot plot. We still think that October is on the table, another 25 basis point cut there. Then it becomes a matter of how has the economic data developed in the interim? What's going on with the trade war? Have we seen yet another escalation in addition to this most recent round of tariffs that China has now placed on U.S. goods? These are key unknown questions for which, frankly, at this point, the market lacks the insight, if for no other reason than simply because they're coming out of the White House in Beijing, and it's difficult to back into exactly how far the trade war will be pushed at this point. In terms of price action, we did see the yield curve invert a couple times. In interpreting what this signals for a recession or non-recession, we've always been of the mind that the most important curve agreeing with the Fed is actually the three-month bill versus tens, and that curve has been inverted all month, and at negative 36, 38 basis points, it's difficult not to interpret that as a signal that something is going on. Whether that portends a recession that the Fed is unable to get in front of or not will be a function of how aggressive the Fed is willing to be at this stage. 
In terms of outright yield levels, the Treasury market remains reasonably well bid. Tins are anchored below 170. We've been in a range that is important in terms of creating a volume bulge from which to stage another potential rally. Does that mean that we're going to see 145, 140 over the course of the next two or three weeks? It certainly is a possibility, particularly in the event that things get even worse on the trade front. We were encouraged to see the relatively strong takedown of 30-year tips. Now, it follows intuitively if we have an easier Fed interested and actively trying to stoke inflation, that inflation protection should be trading at a premium. And let us not forget, it is the longest duration long bond, as it were. On net, we're continuing to expect a period of consolidation. The curve isn't going to break out in either direction in the very near term, although we remain biased for a steepener once the true cutting cycle begins from the Fed. Let's kick this week off with a bit of a hawkish cut scenario. What happens if come the September FOMC, they lower the target range by 25 basis points, but then indicate no further cut bias, i.e. they're happy to have gone 50 cumulative and be on hold for the foreseeable future. So that would imply a couple things, not least of which the beloved dot plot would actually need to be changed in such a way that it was very clear that the Fed had no intention, all else being equal, to cut rates again. So in that scenario, it would clearly be very bearish for the Treasury market, at least for the two, three, and five-year sectors of the curve. In fact, we have seen the curve twos, tens, invert a couple times already, and I wouldn't be surprised in that scenario to see twos, tens invert massively. We would expect risk assets to take a hit. So imagine a situation in which the S&P 500 is off, call it two and a half, three percent. We have two-year yields at 180, 10-year yields at 150, 145. That is a significant inversion of the curve. And frankly, the equity market fall spike associated with such a move in the stock market would tighten financial conditions and the Fed would once again find themselves in a situation where they're communicating to the market that they would like to be more data dependent, but investors are looking at the rest of the world and saying, okay, Powell, you can be as data dependent as you want, but Trump continues to push forward with a trade war that is materially eroding the global economic outlook. And arguably, I would say we have a good example of this in December of 2018, when the Fed did not live up to the market's dovish expectations. In that case, it was investor focus on the balance sheet. Very quickly, you saw, as Ian points out, a spike in equity vol and a quick pivot in this case to hold. In this instance, we have the trade war to contend with and market expectations that have swung even more dovishly. And it's telling that our conversation right now is centered on a rate cut that is too hawkish. I think that really reinforces the notion that it all boils down to forward guidance and not what's happening at the next meeting, but what's happening at the next three, four meetings. So this probably goes without saying, I don't think this is what's going to happen, but it's a non-zero possibility given a series of dominoes all falling in a certain direction. And I'd say particularly around some of the economic data, perhaps I'm using the trade tensions, whatever. Question I'd have to you two is, what evolution in the economic data would we need to see that kind of move? In essence, you know, a hawkish 25 basis point cut 
is path dependent on some economic outcomes, what economic outcomes do we need to take place in order to take this idea seriously? If we take a hard look at the economic data that we've had throughout the course of 2019, at its essence, the only problem or headwinds that we see really come in the sentiment data, primarily in the manufacturing sector. Now, there has been a hit to consumer confidence. Arguably, that was largely a function of the trade war and the continued escalation on that front. In contemplating core CPI, we've actually seen two back-to-back three-tenths of a percent increases on a monthly basis that has brought the year-over-year pace to 2.2%. So I don't think that we would need to see anything additional in terms of accelerating inflation. Jobs growth, good, not great, even with some of the preliminary benchmark revisions. So what it really comes down to is what does it take to inspire business leaders and consumers to improve their outlook into 2020. And as we've said a number of times, it really does come down to removing the global uncertainties associated with the trade war. However, my stance is, and I'd be interested if anyone disagrees, my stance is we're very much in the too little, too late camp for any resolution on the trade front. And outside of pure economic data, I think the list that you just highlighted, Ian, are all necessary, but maybe insufficient conditions to get us there. Look at break-evens. As John often likes to say, they are dismal, abysmal, terrible. Pick your favorite word here. Sad. Another good one. Whether it be the five or 10-year sector, those market-based measures of inflation expectations are troubling, to put it mildly. And the fact that Powell has gone as far to emphasize inflation expectations as just as important, maybe if not more important, than realized inflation, I would tack on a pickup in break-evens back to north of 2% would be another condition that would need to be met. Ben, I appreciate the fact that you're keeping it reals. However, there are asset prices outside of fixed income that we need to worry about not least of which is the equity market. If we look at the way the administration has used the strength within the equity market as cover for pushing back on the trade negotiation front, I would be surprised to see a scenario in which Powell delivers a 25 basis point rate cut, focuses on being data dependent for anything more. I would characterize that as a hawkish cut. And then Trump doesn't subsequently try to push the envelope on the trade war front. I think he has a very clear track record of doing just that. When there is room, either a cushion in equities or a less dovish Fed, Trump seems quite content to stir the proverbial trade pot, as it were. And on the concept of break-evens being an incredibly important factor for Fed policy going forward, one, I think that's absolutely right. Two, it is a little bit crazy in a way, because at the end of the day, this really is a function of the tips market of all things, which is idiosyncratic, certainly not as liquid as the nominal market, and yet has moved into a position of prime importance for not only Fed policy, but global monetary policy writ large. The implications of this, I think we're still trying to understand But it is a little bit of a strange thing where this one subset of the treasury market is providing enormous impact on geopolitical and global economic outcomes. 
to be fair, there are other ways to back into what real yields are outside of those that are traded in the tips market. More importantly, the Fed has been reliant on break-evens as a market measure of inflation expectations. There is the University of Michigan survey, forward-looking inflation expectations there, and one can also interpret what the market's forward expectations might be for inflation out of the outright level of yields combined with where realized inflation is presently. And that's all fair. And I think that's important context to have is despite the borderline collapse we've seen in break-evens over the past few months, we haven't seen the same type of capitulation in the survey data. So one of the things I think dividing some of the committee members is how seriously do you take the tips market? How seriously do you take these market-based measures versus survey responses? On the other hand, it's not obvious to me picking up the phone and calling some random household asking where inflation is going to be five to 10 years forward is the best metric to do it either. And the reason I lay that out, that's similar to the Michigan survey. So I think in general, this is just an extremely difficult thing to measure, which has to make formulating current monetary policy all the more challenging. One of the things that I find fascinating in that context is when we look at the survey data, particularly the, the UMish survey data, the number that people actually throw out for medium-term expectations is in that 25 to 3% range, which frankly contrasts a fair amount with a lot of conversations that I've been having over the last couple years. There have been a number of times in which I have met with clients and there's been significant pushback in terms of the way that the Fed currently measures inflation using headline and core CPI. The biggest critique with core CPI is that we quality adjust or hedonically adjust in such a way that while prices might be steadily increasing, their contribution to core CPI is more of a drag. When I've asked anecdotally where people generally think inflation is rather than where it's currently being reported. The numbers that I tend to get are actually north of 4%. I often hear 4.5%, 5% just as a ballpark. So with current real growth at 2%, PCE at another 2%, that gives you 4% nominal. If people believe it's 5% inflation, we're in negative real growth? I guess that's why the Fed measures it the way they do. And speaking of some of the challenges in accurately measuring economic data, what was your take on the latest benchmark revisions? Those got a lot of attention in the week just passed. What we saw from the BLS last week were revisions to non-farm payrolls from April 2018 to March 2019. These are very traditional preliminary estimates of how, when in January 2020, the official benchmark revisions come out, we would expect the actual numbers to be revised, either higher or lower. In this case, we saw a significant revision lower, subtracting roughly 500,000 jobs from a period that saw approximately 1.5 million jobs created. So the official data effectively took half a million jobs off of the growth that we have seen over that one-year period. So what does that mean? That certainly was interpreted by the Treasury market as being bond bullish because it suggests that the labor market was not on as strong a footing as we had assumed. The flip side, and this is something that I've been contemplating, is 
Well, if jobs growth in 2018 wasn't as robust as we assumed, then that means that the slowdown in jobs growth that we have seen since March of 2019 hasn't really been as bad. Said differently, we're continuing to tread between 150 and 200,000 jobs a month added to payrolls at a period where the unemployment rate seems extremely low by historic standards and wage gains still remain relatively benign. Not to be that guy, but is there a chance we're also overestimating currently? And what I mean by this is... Should we think of a bias in these revisions such that when we're growing, they get revised higher, and when we're slowing, they get revised lower? You're right, John. Historically, there has been a tendency for the economic data to actually miss the cycle turns. So the benchmark non-farm payrolls numbers will actually be revised lower in moments in which the employment market is weakening. And we don't see that at the time, which is why the benchmark revisions are so important. The caveat that I'll add here is that the final revisions data hasn't hit yet. That won't be until the first quarter of next year. And that will incorporate the birth-death adjustment. Now, the birth-death adjustment I find to be fascinating. Not only does it have a great label, frankly, and it gets people excited about change in population or what it all means. It doesn't mean that. What it has to do with is the creation or the ending of companies or of firms, so either the birth of firms or the closure of firms. And so every year, the payrolls numbers are subsequently adjusted accordingly to make sure that we account for the correct number of enterprises that are estimated using the payroll survey. So I'm trying to make sense of all of this. Looking back over the past year, year and a half, one of the primary pillars of the everything is okay in the economy argument was a strong labor market. We've actually had a weaker labor market to the tune of 500,000 people, which is concerning of itself. When was the last time we saw such a major downward revision? 2009. Hmm. What was going on at that period? I don't know. That was a long time ago. Well, I was hiding under my desk and the curve was steepening which is why I think the course of the next three or four weeks is going to be very telling in terms of the shape of the curve. We've been debating internally whether or not the curve will simply have to re-steepen if and when the Fed actually does move into a truly accommodative policy stance. The re-steepening seems to have been a bit challenged, frankly. As we speak, the two-stins curve is inverted. However, My take is that that's simply a function of the fact that the Fed hasn't wholeheartedly committed to an easing campaign. If and when the Fed decides that they need to provide 100, 150 basis points worth of accommodation, it's very difficult to imagine that the two-stins curve doesn't dramatically steepen on that. The fact that we are where we are in terms of outright yield levels at the moment does, however, suggest that we will not see the type of re-steepening that we have seen in prior cycles. To say nothing of the fact that even the potential for another round of QE, if not the execution of it, is also going to naturally keep a lid on how far long-end rates can rise. One irony about all this focus on recession risk now that two's tens has crossed zero, it's not actually the inversion that is really scary. It's when the curve shoots much deeper. So if you look in 2000, if you look in 2007, 2008, it was when the curve was accelerating steeper because the Fed was about to start cutting very, very aggressively. 
that's when the recession fears really, really kicked in. And that's consistent, Ian, with your point of the Fed hasn't moved into a very aggressive easing campaign because we are not yet in a contraction. If you start to see twos go back to a zero handle, that's the moment where we're expected to return to the zero lower bound. Economic growth will slow. Layoffs will begin. And we're going to start talking about a real quantitative easing program. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. In the week ahead, the focus will shift away from monetary policy and to the economic data, if for no other reason than the calendar is light in terms of Fed speak. There are a few important data points that we'll be watching. Consumer confidence on Tuesday will provide context for how much damage the trade war has been doing to optimism on the household level. It's interesting to note that historically, the correlation between consumer confidence and gasoline prices and equities are very high. However, equities have been performing reasonably well and gasoline prices remain contained, yet Nonetheless, we recently saw the August University of Michigan Consumer Confidence deliver the largest one-month drop since 2012. So clearly what's going on in the rest of the world via global trade has been trickling through to consumer optimism. That's an important consideration as we worry about the pace of consumption and as the one pillar continuing to drive domestic growth, Any signs that spending might be curtailed into the end of the year will be important as we consider the direction of monetary policy and the rates market overall. In that context, Friday, we do see the personal spending figures. We had a very strong retail sales print, and so the combination of retail sales and the general performance of the retail sector during earnings season make it difficult to anticipate that we won't see a solid number on Friday. Now, as the first spending report for the second half of the year, it becomes all that more relevant. Let us not forget we have the classic dueling forces of supply in the front end of the curve, 40 billion twos, 41 billion fives, as well as 32 billion sevens immediately before month end. And of course, the unofficial end to summer with the long Labor Day weekend. Recent data shows that Japan has overtaken China as the largest foreign holder of treasuries, and this comes at a period when investors in Tokyo buying treasuries on an unhedged basis has presumably become a reality. This is important not only insofar as what it suggests for underlying demand for treasuries as an asset class, but it also bodes well for the auctions, particularly fives and sevens, as those are areas in which foreign participation tends to drive the results. Beyond that, let us not forget about the constructive seasonals in the treasury market, which are historically at least near their peak of influence over the course of the next two weeks. If we look back over the course of the last 30 years, 10-year yields do tend to hit their low point in the middle of September. Obviously, that's threading the needle quite specifically. However, as we anticipate some of the event risks on the horizons, it's difficult to want to be aggressive sellers of treasuries at this point, particularly ahead of the September FOMC meeting. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks, as well as condolences, to anyone who has managed to make it this far. 
and while it promises to be a tone-setting week in the Treasury market, the true highlight will come on Tuesday the 27th when we can once again indulge our passion for pumpkin spice soy lattes with an extra shot of espresso. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.